Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. Uh, And if I am correct in stating that his role, his uh, function, uh, his influence in the American Revolution was enormous. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Mark Holacek discussing Thomas Jefferson's views on rebellion, revolution, and treason. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Mark Holacek, and he'll be discussing Thomas Jefferson's many political views on the most important issues of his day. I have a question for you. It's one that Mark poses in his article, available at www.allthingsliberty.com. What is the difference between a revolution and a rebellion? They are very different, and we often use them interchangeably. I know at times I'm guilty of it. You might be too, but you won't anymore. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Mark Holacek. Mark Holacek, thank you for joining us. How you doing, Brady? Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. I am a retired professor of history and philosophy. I was uh, schooled at Wayne State University, where I got a bachelor's and in, uh, in psychology and another in philosophy. I uh, attended the graduate program, got a master's in philosophy at Wayne State in Detroit. Then I uh, matriculated. You can matriculate uh, going to college these days instead of just matriculating footballs like they do on on, uh, on football Sunday. Little inside joke, but anyways, um, I, I went to uh, University of Pittsburgh and got my uh, a master's in history and philosophy of science and a PhD in history and philosophy of science at the University of Pittsburgh. So uh, that was in line with their um, philosophy department, which was at the time the number two philosophy department in the country. So one of get a very excellent education, um, and I'm very proud of that education. So that's where I was schooled. Um, wasn't schooled and had no interest early on in Thomas Jefferson. I was doing ancient Greek and Roman science and philosophy. What first drew your interest into this topic? It's no particular reason. Uh, I'm always interested. I've written 20 books on Thomas Jefferson. I have two more I'm working on, two others that are done, and uh, he's a fascinating person. I'm tremendously fascinated by the concept of liberty. Uh, I think 
that there has never been, there was not in Jefferson's time anybody who was so robustly involved with understanding, defining, and actuating the concept of liberty other than Thomas Jefferson. And, you know, the more I think about this concept, and in one of my books I remember defining four different types of liberty for Jefferson, uh, the concept is very, very dynamic, and it's very alive in Jefferson's political philosophy. So to understand, uh, you know, to understand liberty, you have to understand rebellion and revolution. They are very important, critical concepts in understanding Jefferson's notion on, on liberty. What do you think informed Jefferson's political philosophy? Uh, and here... You know, I differ from a lot of people. I think to be a good Jefferson scholar, one has to be well-versed, ancient Greek and Latin authors. He was well-read in people like, as much as he said he hated Plato, he knew Plato's political views quite uh, well, Aristotle's politics, uh, he drew abundantly, morally and politically, from Cicero's moral and political writings. So he drew a lot from ancient historians like Tacitus, Livy, uh, even Plutarch. So you have that one element in Jefferson, which is a lot of scholars today call it the classical Republican stream or element. And then you get the, the liberal, the, the Lockean liberal Jefferson, and in a very weird way, Thomas Jefferson unites Lockean liberalism and classical republicanism. Now, you might want to say, how do you wed those two? And that's a, a valid question, because, uh, you know, the one is asking you to uh, put all your efforts into the well-being of the state and, and not even concern yourself as much about your own well-being. That's the classical republican view. And the, the Lockean view is, is otherwise. It's, you know, the, the liberal view, as it comes down to us today, that tells us that the well-being of the individuals is, is, uh, is the thing for which the state ought to be preoccupied, with which the state ought to be preoccupied. So that's telling you that the state will be fine if you just, you know, concern yourself for the well-being, i.e. the freedom, the liberty of its individuals and keep government out of it. So you got those two strands that sort of might seem to be clumsily united in Jefferson's political views, but they're not. And the way Jefferson unites them is uh, he thinks that if people are properly educated and government is kept out of individuals' affairs, people will be free to act as they want, but they won't act in any arbitrary way, any way that they want. They'll act for the betterment of the state, of the of the nation, of, of you know. So he thinks that in a strange sense that when freed and kept out that people will because each has a robust sense of morality, of moral feeling, each will act for the well-being of, of every other person. That might be a very naive view, but that's what Jefferson thought. In your article, Mark, you talk about the difference between rebellion and revolution. Uh, how did Jefferson separate these two? 
We never sat down formally and said, okay, this is what a rebellion is, uh, this is what a revolution is. And, and to understand the difference, one has to go through his writings and tease out the distinction. But that distinction is, is an important distinction, um, Brady, because they're radically different concepts. And I say that sincerely. Um, a revolution is, he says in his declaration, it's a wholesale change of government. It's it's the overthrowing of a government. And, you know, obviously for reasons uh, he wants to, you know, a, a, a revolution does not have to be a just revolution, but in the declaration he sort of defines the parameters, uh, gives the parameters of a just revolution. A rebellion, on the contrary, is uh, something that can be, again, can be good or bad, but there are good rebellions in the service of Jeffersonian republics. I call a, a state a Jeffersonian republic if it's uh, working uh, within the confines of the principles of Jefferson's political philosophy, namely government governed by the people, uh, lack of uh, state intervention in people's affairs, maximal participation in governmental affairs by the citizenry, and things like that. There are a large number, you know, uh, uh, ha having uh, a militia and not a standing army and so forth. So the two are, are different concepts. The one uh, is, is a smaller event and the other is a large-scale event. What did he have to say regarding rebellion? Well, when he's in France, he hears about Shays' rebellion, and he is underwhelmed by its potential for harm. Now imagine we just went through, the country just went through a major revolution, won a war, and... Uh, it was a frightening experience, and the people who were in, in Massachusetts at the time when Shady's Rebellion occurred were petrified that this might incite another revolution. And, you know, so um, Jefferson was in France, and Jefferson sort of talks about the whole thing rather calmly. And he writes a series of letters in 1787 to friends and um Edward Carrington, James Madison, uh, Abigail Adams, uh, William Abigail Adams letter I think comes later, William Stephen Smith in 1787, and he talks about rebellions being a good thing. That's a strange concept that, you know, where people are up in arms against the government and lives are being lost. Jefferson says this is a, a good thing. He, uh, uh, let me see if I can find the Carrington. He talks about the tumults in America being a good thing and that people ought to be forgiven. To James Madison, I, I quote here, he says, I hold that a little rebellion now and then is a good thing and as necessary in the political world as storms in the physical. Right? Uh, uh, to William Stephen Smith, here's another quote. God forbid we should ever be 20 years without such a rebellion, and he has in mind Shays, the people cannot be all and always well-informed. The part which is wrong will be discontented in proportion to the importance of the facts they misconceive. Right? Uh, he says, if they remain quiet under such misconceptions, it is a lethargy, the forerunner uh, of death to the public liberty. And he describes the, uh, I think it's in the 
Smith letter is that the tree of liberty? I think it's in the Smith letter. He says it needs to be nourished periodically by the blood of patriots. Now, that's some really radical stuff. And why does he say that? Well, because he go back to that concept, that robust concept of liberty. Liberty's dynamic. It, it doesn't just mean, he writes uh, in a letter to whom I don't remember, but he talks of liberty and rightful liberty. And of liberty, he says, it's willful uh, it's the ability to do it as one wants to do without governmental intrusion. And then he says there's rightful liberty. It's the, it's the ability to do as one wants to do without governmental intrusion, so long as you allow other people the same luxury to be able to do what they want to do. So in other words, this is the sort of uh, John Stuart Mill will say the same thing. You know, it's I'm free to do as I want so long as I, other people are I, in doing what I want. I don't impede other people from doing what they want to do. OK, now, you know, so he talks of uh, to, in the letter to Madison on January 30. He talks of government without laws and he's thinking of the Native Americans government with too many laws. And he's thinking of, you know, France typically and to a lesser extent, England. And then he's envisaging a government with just the right amount of laws, few, but enough to keep matters in order. That's the sort of Jeffersonian Republic he has in mind. And the problem is when you have few laws, people are going to do much as they want to do. And oftentimes you're going to see uh, periodic pockets of violence, you're going to see people saying what they want to say. You're going to see people uh, um, condemning, uh, you know, governmental persons and governmental deeds. And Jefferson understands that, well, that might not seem like a good thing, but it's what we need to have to keep liberty afloat. And I'll just add one more thing, because this is, I know it's a long answer, but it's a very important answer to a question. He says in query 17, I think it is, of his notes on Virginia, it's a very important passage where he waxes pessimistic. And he says the, something to the effect, I almost remember the quote from Beta. He says, the time for fixing our attention to the rights of human being, the human beings is now, I'm not reading, I'm thinking, um, he says, because after the war, people will get lost in the sole capacity of making money. They will forget about their rights and, you know, interested in making money. They're, you know, he's envisaging a time just like the present where I don't really care what the government does so long as they leave me alone and let me make my money. You know, I don't really want to get too involved in things. Uh, but I'd like to have more money so I can buy more things. So a rebellion is a periodic wake-up call for people to say, hey, liberty is a dynamic thing. It need, we need to fight for it. Look at what's going on in Ukraine, Brady. So many people fighting for liberty because it's our land. It's our way of life. It's our freedom. And even if Ukraine wasn't a democracy prior to the war, if they survive it uh, and win, and I hope they do, they will be. 
as much as any other country on the planet, a democracy because they fought for freedom. They are fighting for freedom. They're fighting for their land, their way of life. That's what rebellion is for Jefferson. What were his thoughts on revolution? Well, you know, here's, here's where you have to give Jefferson his due. Let me just talk. Um, how much of that, you were talking about the era, uh, the era of revolution, and even today that, you know, we live at revolutionary times as well. How much of that is the result of Jefferson's actions in the Continental Congress? I throw that out for consideration because he was, even though he was a quiet member, he was on so many committees, many of which he headed. Um, and I'll add, you know, he worked his tail off. And as I say, if I'm right to say that perhaps no one in the world at the time was a greater sponsor of the concept of liberty as a blessing uh, for people, as something that all people, of which all people were deserving, then, you know, it, it might be that his thoughts, he was the greatest revolution, uh, revolutionist of his day. So uh, the question was, what, his thoughts on revolution? I'm sorry. Yeah, I want to get back to that. So that this is sort of like a, a, a preamble or a preface. You know, liberty was the, the Declaration of Independence. He, he talks of the American Revolution in a letter to his son-in-law, uh, Francis Wales Epps. I think it's that son-in-law. And he says it's a holy war. The American Revolution he calls it a holy war. I'm writing a book on this right now. I'm so blown away by his use of that term, holy war. It is a war involving much bloodshed, but it's fought not just for Americans, in my estimate. It's fought for the whole world. He expects if the American Revolution succeeds, and it does, and with his ascension to the presidency in 1801, um, there is a contagion to this. There, you know, Madison presidency, the Monroe presidency, both two terms, uh, it's going to overwhelm the world. There are going to be revolutions in, uh, with the aim of Republican government. So, um, you know, so it's a, the American Revolution he calls a holy war. And then in the Declaration, he gives an apologia, a justification for why any appeals to the tribunal, he says, of the whole world. Let me see if I can find the quotes. He says, when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object, events are designed to reduce them, some of the people, under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such a government and to provide new guards for future security. Now, notice the if-then notion of the claim. It's an if-then statement. When or if there's a long train of abuses and usurpations, then the people. So this is not a universal, absolute, axial right, like life, liberty, and, universe, and pursuit of happiness. You understand what I mean by axial right? By that I mean it's just obvious when you think about it. This is a conditioned right. Uh, 
And by that, I mean there has to be a condition for the right to be operative. Namely, when there are these abuses and they uh, invariably pursue the same object, then, and only then, is the right to revolution. And, uh, you know, so there has to be despotic aims. They have to be continuous. And then there's a right for people. And then the people need to uh, have the right to revolt. They have a right to... Um, they have a right to throw off the government, and then they have a right to instantiate a government of their own choosing. Uh, by that, he means a government dictated by the will of the majority of citizens. He's always, always adamant that government has to be founded or formed by the will of the majority of citizens, which Madison <laughs> in his fed- and the Federalist uh, paper says, you know, that too can be a sort of tyranny. Uh, Jefferson might have said, "Yeah, maybe it's a form of tyranny, but that's the best we can do." The will, but, but again, I, I, I go back to his first inaugural address. It, you know, he says uh, uh, everything has to follow the will of the majority, but that will to be rightful. He says must be reasonable. In other words, one of the things he means by that, a couple things he mean. The most important thing I think he means by that. It must be a studied, it must be an intelligent will. Uh, people need to do their homework, right? You just can't, you can't have a revolution for no reason, right? So there are conditions that, that make revolution right. What does Jefferson write about the concept of treason? Now, I, when I wrote this paper years ago and refined it over the years, um, it was published in your journal, uh, Journal of American Revolution. Um, the notion of a section of treason, is it needed? And the more I read his, yeah, it is needed because he refines his views. Uh, I wrote when he was part of the five-man committee with uh, with uh, Ludlow Lee, who was a George Mason and uh, Pendleton in 1776, like, he didn't have enough to do in 1776, did he? So he forms, as part of this committee, uh, with, uh, and uh, Lee and Mason drop out. One of them dies soon, and uh, so it's just a three-man committee to reform all of the laws of Virginia. Now imagine that, you know, on a committee just rewriting all the laws. So he writes in Bill 64, let's see what's the title of it, it's called A Bill for Proportioning Crimes and Punishment in Cases Heretofore Capital. By the title is suggestive of trying to get rid of capital punishment as an appropriate punishment for certain crimes. Now, he talks about rather conservatively the notion of treason. And Lisa Fania say, well, says, if a man do levy war against the commonwealth or be adherent to the enemies of the commonwealth, giving to them aid or comfort in the commonwealth or elsewhere, and thereof be convicted of open deed by the evidence of two sufficient witnesses or his own voluntary confession, the said cases and no others shall be adjudged treasons which extend to the commonwealth, and the person so convicted shall suffer death by hanging, and he's going to forfeit his lands and goods to the commonwealth. So he's got a monolithic view of treason, 
1776. And I don't suspect that he just had, he writes it into the law monolithically. Then in 1792, and you notice this is after uh, uh, Shays' Rebellion, he changes his mind and he comes up with a distinction um, which might be, what does he call it? He calls it real and apparent treason. And why does he come up with this distinction? Because of his notion of rebellion, that you know, because of Shay's rebellion, in, in my estimation, um, he saw that rebellions are often very good things and necessary, sort of like for recharging a Jeffersonian republic. It's fueled by freedom to speak, for people to speak their mind, and you know, there, there's going to be turbulence. He always says turbulence is a necessary part. And in that, Madison and many other people agreed. Democracy always is turbulent. But it's better to have that turbulent turbulence, he says, than the quiet of tyranny. Look what goes on in Soviet Russia, uh, uh, in Russia today and in China in China, things are other than the COVID problem. Things are relatively quiet. People going on making their money, uh, but uh, the news is sort of filtered for them. And are they free to say what they want to say and think as they want to, or yeah, say what they want to say and do what they want to do? Not entirely. So um, Jefferson, you know, recognizes the necessity of. The, of the sort of uh, tumult of, um, of of rebellions in a Jeffersonian democracy. So he makes this distinction, and he says, uh, see if I find the quote, he says this, and he's talking about treason, when real merits the highest punishment, most codes extend their definitions of treason to acts not really against one's country. They do not distinguish between acts against the government and acts against the oppressions of the government. The latter are virtues, yet have furnished more victims to the executioner than the former. Um, and, of course, he can't be thinking about the Alien and Sedition Acts because it didn't happen yet, but that would be a great example, right, when people are punished for being treasonous, the Sedition Act, you know, the, later on. Um, so, you know, real treasons are rare oppressions frequent. So he makes this distinction, right? And he no longer um, awards or affords uh, execution for treason, but expatriation. Let's just throw them out of the, throw them out of the country. So I, I, I think it's so important, and I hope you'll agree that to add his thoughts on, uh, on treason because, you know, his thoughts on treason were influenced mightily by his notion of rebellion and his notion of revolution. How have historians treated Jefferson on these matters? Well, in terms of how historians have treated Jefferson on revolution, you know, fairly favorably, I think most historians, myself included, try to understand just what Jefferson thought when it came to revolution. You know, without trying to answer the question, was the American Revolution a good or bad event? I try not to do that when I write history, and I try not to be critical because it's very easy to be critical of 
pass actors, uh, especially when you know the, we are separated by a few hundred years or even millennia. So I try not. But I think typically his thoughts on revolution have, you know, criticism hasn't been forthcoming. Now on rebellion, yes, the people have been very harsh. Um, I think I write in the paper of uh, William Howard Adams, Thomas Fleming, Joe Ellis, and Michael Hart, you know, and uh, the most scathing critic is uh, Conor Cruz O'Brien, whose book I read, and I just thought it was almost abusively critical. Um, He writes that Jefferson, at least from the period, you know, from his French days to Shady's Rebellion, he says Jefferson was somewhat in the grip of, uh, what did he call it, the fanatical cult of liberty, that's what he says. Uh, And he says it would be blasphemous to assign limits to it. So um, he wants to say Jefferson was embracing a wild sort of liberty, uh, what I would just call liberty as an end. So he says Jefferson was at this delusional period where liberty was just such a great thing. And it didn't matter how many people died pursuing liberty as an end. Now, the problem with that and the problem with all the critics here is that Jefferson never pursued liberty as an end. It might seem that way from his thoughts on liberty, but liberty was always, and here's classical Republican again, was always for the sake. Liberty was always for the sake of human thriving, human happiness. Uh, the, the same sort of uh, ephdemonia in Greek, the same sort of uh, thinking that Aristotle, Plato, the Stoics had, uh, Cicero, the communitarian thinkers of the time, that the state is, you know, who thought the state was much more important than the individuals in it. Uh, Jefferson probably thought the the individuals were more important, but the individuals would support the state and treat it in a very wonderful way if given their liberty and, and suitably educated. So the critics have been very, very hard and unkind to Jefferson on the notion of rebellion. And I think wrongly, I think if you read carefully even some of his harsh claims about the importance that, that we need to nourish the tree of liberty with the blood of tyrants and the blood of patriots, uh, I think that's correct. I really do. I just think that if you really, if you want to have with people's present sense of moral maturity, if you want to have Republican government, you want to have liberty, there are going to be glitches. There are going to be rebellions, and there are going to be bloody rebellions. Uh, these are wake-up calls. Now, I'll, I'll add one other thing here that I almost forgot to talk about. His notion that there be periodic uh, constitutional conventions where there'll be wholesale consideration of the Constitution and revision of it if necessary. That, in large measure, was instituted in large measure to obviate, to make unnecessary these rebellions. And that was a very important thing that he uh, wanted included. Periodic um, conventions of delegates to rethink all aspects of a constitution to update it, right? And and that's why he was no relativist. He wasn't a political relativist as people paint him. His Koch, Adrian Koch paints him. As Dumas Malone, the great Jefferson scholar, paints Jefferson a political relative. He was not. 
He thought the constitutions needed to be changed periodically, not just because the will of the majority changes, it's because the will of the majority changes and advances. Think of the advances of the sciences in Jefferson's day, the advances that Galileo and Newton, Tycho Brahe, Johannes Kepler, uh, Boyle, and others have made since the time of Aristotle's cosmology. You know, uh, giving us an entirely new way to look at the world that is dictated by interaction, by study, examination, measurement, observation of the world. That's an advance. So Jefferson is talking about constitutional renewal because the people are becoming, on average, brighter and smarter. So we need to update the Constitution to accommodate the growth of political and moral maturity on behalf of the people. Mark, how does this article help us understand the revolutionary era better? Now that I won't, I, I can answer without being so long-winded. Um, it, ends, it helps us understand the revolution because it helps us understand Thomas Jefferson. That's why it's important. If I am correct in asserting, in asseverating that Thomas Jefferson was the most important figure of his day in advancing and entertaining the notion of liberty, uh, and if I am correct in stating that his role, his uh, function, uh, his influence in the American Revolution was enormous, then helping us to understand Jefferson better helps us understand the Revolution, right? As one historian said, if Jefferson is right, then America is right. If Jefferson is wrong, is then America is wrong. Jefferson was, uh, and this is not just me speaking as a Jefferson scholar, I think he was the most important founding father the most important American figure in the American Revolution. And that includes people like Washington and Patrick Henry. Washington, obviously, from a militaristic perspective. Go back to summarize. It's important because knowing Jefferson's mind in the Continental Congress at the time of the American Revolution is important for understanding the revolution. You get rid of Thomas Jefferson, you can ask would the American Revolution even have succeeded? That's a viable question. Mark Holichak, thanks again. Thank you very much. Glad to be on your show. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. 